Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 157th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that is settling in for a long, hard winter of the wallet. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Uh, excited to be here for episode 157, the start of our fourth year. That is quite an accomplishment, I think. I pat ourselves on the back. Time is flying. I can't believe it's been three whole years since we started this gig. Yeah, actually, I, I would definitely does not feel like it has been three years. Three years is a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. Um, awesome. Awesome, awesome. Uh, I am looking forward to sharing some valuable information with everyone. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today, mtgprice.com, to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord with James, myself, and all of our other pro traders on a daily basis, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. I must say, the MTG Price Discord has been very spicy as of late and i don't think anybody has any doubt that has been hanging out in there that the value derived from mtg price in general and our discord in specific um is going to leave anybody wanting in the year 2019 james messages me on a daily basis to tell me how excited he is about the discord so it's definitely Definitely exciting for everyone involved, it would seem. The, the excitement is drawn from the fact that for years, the forums of MTG Price were like ships passing in the night with people trying to start conversations that other people were n- not hanging around to witness. And so they really didn't kick off. Um, but the Discord took off right away. Constant chatter in there. Lots of productivity. People finding people to trade with overseas. People buying and selling things in the sale thread. Um and all sorts of hot tips for speculation swinging back and forth. Yeah, it's been, there's been a lot there, uh, a lot of conversation, a lot of ideas. One of them popped up in our Discord today that I thought was really fascinating. Um, just, 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 some, just, just uh, genuinely some cool content if you're into that type of thing. Um, but, anyways, let me tell you about our four segments this week. Segment one is our top movers. James and I will look at the cards that have risen in price the most this week. Segment two, our cards to watch. James and I will run through the cards that we have our eye on uh, for the future. Segment three is our metagame week in review. This past weekend was Pro Tour Cleveland. Uh, and finally, segment four, topic of the week. I think we're going to talk about the upcoming modern set, War of the Spark and the Pro Tour. Uh, so let's hop in here. Segment one, our top movers. First card on the week of the week, Corona False God foils out of Scourge, uh, fifteen to thirty or so for about a double up. There were several account one, two, three, four cards from the onslaught block that kind of disappeared this week, jumped in price a good bit. This is probably uh, mostly that, although Corona does see some play in EDH. Uh, she was a popular five color general before we got a deluge of them over the last couple of years. Um, so kind of a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B on this one. I'm happy to sell this and move along. They could reprint her at any time they feel 
compelled. Uh, they'll do it in a modern frame, which makes the old board or foils interesting, but demand on these is going to be so low that uh, I'd rather just take the 30 bucks and move it elsewhere. Yeah, one of these situations where you definitely don't want to be deep on the card, and I doubt many of you are. I don't think I could see this. I don't think this is going to be a priority to reprint at any point. This is a very kind of a weird card. Um, moving right along, we've got Toothy Imaginary Friend from Battle Bond uh, moving in lockstep uh, with his partner from Battle Bond. Um, Peer, Imaginative Rascal. Yeah, who also appears on the list this week. Both of them, the non foils. Uh, Toothy moving from two fifty to five dollars or so. Pier moving from three fifty to eight. Um, Pier is probably the more interesting of the two, given the Planeswalker hype from War of the Spark. Toothy comes along for the ride because in some of the builds uh, of, say, Atraxa for EDH, um, they work really well together. Um, Toothy wouldn't make Atraxa superfans builds, but there's you know plenty of people out there that have made more of a counters theme build, and there are a bunch of other generals like Azuri, etc., um, that are also interested in those kind of interactions in these this color scheme. Yep, uh, it's a nifty card. Battle Bond, uh, quietly kind of hanging out over there. Um, so not a huge jump, but probably not the last time we'll see that happen on these cards until a reprint happens. Uh, following that is Caravac the Merciless foils out of Time Spiral 15 to 30. This isn't the first time this card has popped up. I don't know when the last time we talked about it in this cast was, but I know that it saw some actions a long time ago, probably a year, maybe a year and a half ago. I don't think there's anything specific going on with him lately, uh, aside from the fact that Time Spiral foils are pretty hard to come by. It's also an awesome card. That might be out of Joda, um, but I don't, I don't think so. So I'm not I'm not exactly clear what the re- if there would be a recent trigger, but I do know that there's been interest in the past. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure there is a recent trigger, and it's on the tip of my tongue. But I'm just going to go ahead and let the listeners get their licks in and tell us what it is in the Discord. It's on the tip of your tongue, like you know, and you don't want to say it, or you can't think of it. No, I can't think of it. I'm pretty sure we have touched on this in the last few months, and that time we knew what we were talking about. <laughs> okay, I believe <laughs> so it's, it. it's it's old age. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, Azusa Lost But Seeking from Champions of Kamigawa foils, uh, original foils, uh, moving from 67 to 140. Amulet Titan has been ascendant in modern as of late. It, this was a recent cast pick along with most of the other versions of the card. Um, I picked up a whole bunch of these in a variety of different forms. Uh, somebody hit me up trying to buy some last night. Card is moving and does do work. Um, good in EDH, good... Um, in modern, just a good card overall. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm sure and probably not the last time we'll see that either. Uh, after it retraces back towards like 80, 90, and then bounces to 180. Uh, following that, Quest for the Goblin Lord foils out of World Wake. Um, I know this is kind of nifty in like EDH. Did this show up in like a modern Goblin deck? Are you aware of anything like that? This has Saffron Olive written all over it, so even if it wasn't his fault, we'll just play it on him. Yes. Yeah, there's no recent decks using this card on Goldfish, but like he might have still made a deck with it that it doesn't pop up on the front yeah, page. Or somebody did. Um, those yeah. kind of casual spikes you, you sell into, but not when they're, they go $1.50 to 360 That's where you just leave it in the binder and move on. Yeah, I hope that happens two or three exactly. more times. All right, so Striped Riverwinder out of Hour of Devastation. These foils have been on the move for a little while. They were very cheap at one point. Now it's going from 5 to 10. This is on the back of the modern Living End, Blue Red Living End decks. Um, 
you cycle the striped river river winder into your graveyard and later bring it back with all of your other creatures while you're killing your opponents and so on and so forth mostly a fringe deck but lots of streamers have spent some time with it um so it has got some exposure not tremendously uh, surprising to see it uh, making a move the art on striped river winder is really cool this is yeah, that like cell shaded thing yeah and it looks good in foil too yeah, uh, definitely. I appreciate the departure from the standard CGI fantasy landscape a little bit. It would yep. be cool to see them do like a comic book, like Into the Spider-Verse inspired art set, even just like a, a promo set, like a, you know, a dual deck type style product where all the art was comic booky. That would be kind of nifty. I would love, that would be really cool if they did, if when they did, promo products like basically non-standard sets they embraced different art styles like okay this time we're going to do ultra realistic this time we're going to do comic books this time we're going to do i don't know flat cell shaded art like you know kind of switched up a little bit be kind of fascinating i i would really like to get a masterpiece series at some point which is basically a tour of different styles of art like cubist postmodern um surrealist etc and have those be takes on like famous uh, original pieces of magic art because frankly black lotus art is iconic but no offense to the original artist it is not the greatest um approximation of technical excellence uh yeah <laughs> i i'm totally on board except they can't have ron spencer he is uh, objectively the worst artist in Magic's history, and I will hear nothing to the uh, contrary. Following that is Omen Machine out of New Phyrexia. Foils like two and change up to five. Another jump that's really hard to capitalize on. I also don't see this in any decks. It's not really big in Commander. This is the one that prevents players from drawing cards. And then uh, at the beginning of their draw step they exile the top card if it's a land they put it on the play otherwise they cast it for free um i don't I, nothing's jumping out of me is like where you would see this i mean edh rock says it's in narset and we ha we have some narset stuff this week but that's a modern deck not an edh deck so i got nothing it's a very nice way of me saying i have nothing yeah, I don't know anything about that one either. Rage Forgers, because of the Shaman deck that's been making the rounds, that actually is looking less and less silly and more and more consistent. Um, doesn't look like it's going to post up as a Tier 1 deck, per se, but certainly the kind of thing you might see show up at your F&M and could put in a random Top 8 at some point this sure. year. Uh, Silver Hive Lord. Boy, we sound like morons. Uh, Silver Hive Lord... Foils were 30 to 80. I know the non-foils jumps pretty hard as well. I've sold two or three in the last 24 hours at like 25 US, um, which is a lot higher than the like, I don't know, 11 or 12 they were sitting at prior. So some pretty good movement there. Um, but I also don't know where Silver Hive Lord came from. And I, I, do you know? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a YouTube channel that focuses on budget uh, commander brews. And they put out a video that was relatively well received where they were talking about uh, how slivers weren't that expensive to play. I mean, so they, they basically reinvigor brought some focus in on Sliver Hive Lord, which I'm thrilled about. Um, if any of those casual EDH players feel like buying my Japanese foil Sliver Hive Lords. Yeah, I also have a pile of Japanese Sliver Hive Lords. They're not foils. I picked them up when I was in Japan. Uh, and that was like three or four years ago. Uh, so, but I'm right there with you. I sold, I sold one. I did sell one, James. It was like 15, maybe. 
which is really good because I'm pretty sure I got them for like four bucks US. Uh, but yeah, I'm really hoping they sell. So I'm also nice. very happy to see the attention paid to these guys. Now just do Silver Hive as well. Uh, Nullstone Gargoyle foils out of Ravnica, three to ten. We talked about this a week or two ago. This is uh, in the back of Nikki of the old ways because it is a creature that counters your opponent's first non-creature spell. So it kind of reinforces the deck's strategy. Yeah. Um, then we've got Deploy the Gatewatch out of Eldritch Moon. Foils going from 5 to 17. Card we've been talking about with the pro traders in Discord. Um, and I'm mentioning on cast is one of the things that people might go after once we establish that War of the Spark was probably about Planeswalkers. This is also the sweetest, sweetest revenge um, against our dear uh, peer Cliff, a fellow writer on MTG Price, Cliff Daigle. Uh, occasional co-host of the show um bet me must be two years ago now um uh, a bet that i lost where i said that deploy the gatewatch was going to top eight a standard tournament um at some point in the next six months that did not materialize um but i had bought a bunch of foils for three dollars turns out that was a pretty good bar i <laughs> well uh i'm glad to hear that it worked out for you in the long run uh better lucky than good yes that's uh what i say every time i score a ridiculous point in racquetball i'd also like to give out a shout out to our our co-cast member here cliff who is currently striking with the teachers union in california um and i we're we're behind you 100 of the way cliff uh yep i i deliberately did not point out the success of deploy the gate watch (laughs) since it's probably not his top priority at the moment no one can't imagine uh following that rolling stones uh foils out of eighth edition this can't be the first time this has popped up on the cast this is because of uh what am i supposed to say it's arcades right it's not arcades yep who yeah, is arcades. uh the commander who rewards defense creatures walls that type defenders creatures defender walls that type of thing so rolling stones lets all your creatures that previously couldn't attack now attack it's also one of the is it the only foil copy wait Give me two seconds. Seventh? Uh, was in seventh. seventh. Yes, right? it was in seventh. So seventh or eighth, but the only modern border foil. And probably the only time we're going to see this card for quite a long time. Wizards does not print a lot of walls these days. Last time we had a set with any sort of wall focus was uh, Rise of the Gatewatch. No, not Rise of the Gatewatch. Rise of the Eldrazi. Elder- yeah. yeah, so I don't see this coming back anytime soon. So, I, But I'd be still be happy to sell them because probably not going to have much attention i mean you'll trickle them out the door but there's not going to be a burst of these again anytime soon i can't remember what the card is but i think it's a blue white card from a recent set that basically doubles down on assault formations ability to let creatures attack with their toughness and it's that consistency that has suddenly put this in the crosshairs for streamers and content creators um, and it's been featured a few different times in the last few months yeah they, yeah because they did assault formation and then they did another one too uh so that makes sense uh after that we've got entrancing melody out of ixalan non-foils uh dollar and change to five this was in the winning pro tour deck we saw uh one in the main three on the side uh, and it bounced around in a couple other lists too i believe so i would be ditching these i mean if you still have them it's probably too late um but people will still be playing this uh over the coming weeks at your local store um so you might still be able to get rid of them but you're probably not getting you know six bucks for them it looks like on tcg they're down to four right now but i would be trying to trade these as fast as humanly possible to anyone looking to play this deck at my store oh yeah 
this is one of those commander cards i mean sorry standard cards where you just you want to get out while the getting is good this is not going to be a future 20 dollar card no no it is not all right so next on the list uh we have pemmin's aura from scourge foils going from 350 to 1888 um, this is a card I usually run in Xur the Enchanter, because if I'm not mistaken, this allows you to basically give uh, Xur Shroud or Hexproof or something. Uh, it can untap the creature and give it Hexproof, I think. It's a pretty obnoxious aura. Um, yeah, it gives Shroud. I used it in my... Old school Hexproof. Yeah, oh, that's what it was. I'm sorry. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I used it in my Prodigal Sorcerer deck. And I would put this on Prodigal Sorcerer and then ping and then pay one on tap and ping and pay one on tap. And then you could put, uh, I think it was Curiosity on it back then. And then you would draw a card every time you did it. And it was quite the little engine. You could get Death Touch on there as well. That was fun. Yeah. Good times. Uh, so we talked about Riptide, Riptide and Trancer is one of the Onslaught cards. Foils going from 6 to 45. That's not a real number. You'll never get that much for it. Moving right along, Serum Powder from Iconic Masters. Foils going from $3 to $25. It was used in a really weird 5-0 Narset deck on Magic Online. And there's been discussion about Serum Powder in relation to the new Mulligan rule that's going to get tested at GP London in April. Yes, that's, pro- that, you know, that's probably more what this is about uh, than that is just people hoping that Serum Powder is going to be useful under the new Mulligan rule. Yeah, so in this new mulligan rule, I believe that on each mulligan, you draw back up to normal, but you put an increasing number of cards on the bottom of your library. Uh, yes, that is correct. That is how it functions. So you get, to, you get to see more cards and then sculpt your hand instead of, <clears throat> instead of getting five cards. You look at seven, choose five. So seven, choose five is clearly better than five. Um, so the idea here is that decks in limited and standard become uh, less dependent on whether you get a good or bad mana to spells ratio. Um, and as my darling father, who screams mana screw to the skies every single time he loses, um, can attest to, I'm sure there will be many players out there that will probably enjoy this uh, this shift in the way that we handle mulligans. There does seem to be some question about what the impact is going to be for modern legacy and vintage and other formats. However, where combo based decks seem to uh, get a serious leg up if they can sculpt hands. This is definitely a curious use of the mulligan rule. I think the general consensus from the pros that I've seen is that it's probably going to make combo too good and too hard to interact with. Patrick Sullivan chatted about it on Twitter a little bit and then wrote a brief article and he basically said, take any win percentage you think you had against Dredge or Gorio's Vengeance and throw it out the window because their failure rate was kind of baked into that. But now in a deck where you really, like if you have Copperline Gorge, Faithful Saluting, uh, Gorio's Vengeance, Grishelbrand, like... You, you only need four cards to win with that deck. You don't need seven. So the decks that really only need two or three pieces to get going are going to be much happier to see this than a deck like Jund, which, you know, just needs raw card advantage. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It was also, by the way, did you see that this is the 5-0 deck that this was used in, that Narset thing? 
No. Uh, yeah, so I, I put in the note and then I forgot to look until just now. This was in a competitive modern league that 5 0 a couple days ago, four days ago. So it ran Simeon Spirit Guide, uh, Nar- for Narset, the Enlightened Master. So that's the three, the one from uh, Dragons of Dark Here? No, Construct Here. I don't know, whatever. It's a six mana three two first strike hex proof, but when she attacks, you exile the top four and you cast um, any non creature spells for free. Mm-hmm. Popular commander. Yes, yeah, yeah, really funky commander. So it, play, it plays it with her because the idea is that you get Narsa out very quickly um, and then attack with her and cast all your crap for free. And it uses, uh, let's see. Oh, so you, this is really weird. It uses, so you, oh my God. It Goryo's Vengeance is her into play and you use Serum, serum Powder to look for to I think you want to probably serum powder her maybe out of the game uh, or you can or you can spoils for other cards and then hopefully exile one and then you use pull from eternity to put her back in your graveyard and then you Gorio's vengeance her into play this is a wild deck but it has four serum powder <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm looking at it now. This I would crazy. have to watch this to kind of get a feel for what their game, their A plan is. But this, I'm realizing, probably has something to do with it as well, because people probably saw the opportunity to attack with Narsa on turn two and cast Omniscience and Enter the Infinite and you know Fury of the Horde for free, and we're like, sign me up. This card, th- this deck runs Conflux, the actual card Conflux, named for the set Conflux. <laughs> Three white, blue, black, red, green. Search your library for a white card, blue card, black card, red card, and green card. Reveal those cards and put them into your hand. It's amazing what you can do when you're casting your non-creature spells. For I don't free. even know what you're supposed to do with that because Narset casts them off the top of your library. So if you, what are you confluxing for? Like you conflux for those spells, well, you, but get... you can't cast them anymore. <laughs> well, you can pull. You can go get. Um, you can go get Simeon Spirit Guide is the red spell. You get or Faithless Looting, depending on which one you need. You can get Noxious Revival to put a card on top of your library. Oh, you, Pull from Eternity is the white this, spell. Spoils from the Vault is the black spell. Yeah, this must work as a package. So you get you trigger your Conflux, and then you get a little package of spells that allow you to like toss Gristlebrand, get Exile Gristlebrand, and then put Gristlebrand like back on top of your library to count for another Narset trigger or something. I would be curious to see Very how it works. Interesting. Okay. Anyways, that's Serum Powder. Top card of the week. Blue Sun Zenith uh, foils out of M25 jumped from 4 bucks to 90 So uh, good luck with that. But the uh, Mirrodin Besiege ones are gone too. Um, I don't see any foil copies basically anywhere, but I don't have a clear answer for where it got used. Um, so if you have an idea, I'm all ears. Uh, but I mean... I got, I got nothing other than that. Oh, no, this I know where it got used. This is being played in Bridgeless, uh, um, the new artifact deck post KCI. Lanternless. Lanternless control. Was that right? It's not running four of them, is it? No, I think it's a one of, I, I thought. Mean, somebody just went after the foils real hard. Let me see where the, the latest usage is. Uh, Saltai Teachings. For modern, apparently. Uh, but they only run one copy. Yeah, that's what I thought. 
Because I remember you and I had this laid out when you were up for GP Toronto. It was one of the cards I put out on the table in front of you. We didn't even really yeah. consider it too hard. This is in the Mystical Teachings deck that uses Wilderness Reclamation so that you're, oh, you're basically doing whatever you want on your turn and then your mana snaps back into position to react to your opponent's turn. I guess. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think of this. How, how, how popular is this card in EDH? Probably pretty popular, right? Yeah, it's like 20,000. Okay, well, that that's what we're talking about, really, then. This is just somebody taking a swipe, realizing that the M25 foils and the original foils had not such a deep inventory. Yeah, that could be it. That could be it. Doesn't seem unreasonable. All right. Well, I, you're, uh, you're not going to get the price asked, but this could definitely settle in as a 20 to $30 foil. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is probably your... Yeah, even 20 seems a little high. 10. If it was, if this was $4, I'm going with like 10. Smells, smells a little bit like coordinated buyout. Um, but then... Oh, yeah. So do most of the cards to watch this week. <laughs> yeah, right. So several. <laughs> Speaking right. of which. Segment two. Yes. Speaking of coordinated buyouts, here's some cards you can coordinate buying out. Uh, segment two are cards to watch. James, you've got a, a Baker's Dozen here. So why don't you get us started? So I went, went to my first pro tour this weekend. Uh, pro tour Cleveland. That was alongside, which was part of the overall package that was referred to as Magic Fest Cleveland, um, which also included GP Cleveland. Um, interestingly enough, when you put a GP in the room next door to a Pro Tour, you get this really interesting... Well, actually, no. What actually happens is the Pro Tour goes on, but nobody's paying attention because there's no screen set up or any way, any announcements being made to let people know what's going on in the Pro Tour so you can cheer along for your favorites. When you walk over to the Pro Tour, there's nowhere to actually get visibility on the games or watch them on a screen or do anything else that would actually get you involved. Um, unless you're a complete fanboy, you're not going to run up to Reed Duke and talk to him about his hair. So... Oh, I'd like to. In fact, it all just kind of ended up that the best place to be watching the Pro Tour was back at your hotel room um, because there was actually half decent coverage. That's sort of the the way it is for like professional sports too, right? Like generally you're better off watching it from home than at the game. It's it's But, but I can imagine it's even more pronounced at the Pro Tour. Yeah, you can go to a basketball game and get courtside seats and get a real sense of just how tall those guys are and how much they would destroy you if you stepped out on the court. But with Magic, it's such a tactical analysis-fueled game that if you're an experienced player, you can kind of create your own analysis in your head by watching a game, but it's basically impossible to do that. So I, I thought the whole thing was very weird. Um, not at all was I, what I was expecting from the concept of a Magic Fest. Um, to me, the whole idea of renaming these things from competitive to um, something that was supposed to be more casually oriented was so that it would attract more people to come just have fun. And certainly lots of fun was had was had over the course of the weekend, but in a model that is all too familiar and has all the same failings and, and catch-22s. So um, all that being said, I did have an excellent time on the show floor. Basically, no vendor was safe. Um, found great buys at almost every booth in the place. Um, spent about a thousand dollars, I guess, over the, the the two days stockpiling some specs. Was picking up some foil spire bluff canals, foil beast whisperers, 
picked up uh, some of the Kaya that was running hot um, as the answer to the the mono blue list because she exiles one casting cost creatures. Um, there was a split second on Monday. We're recording this Tuesday night where Card Kingdom was offering eight fifty on her. Um, and I was feeling really good about the 10 copies I bought on the floor at $5, but I waited too long because I'm always gun shy about putting in small buy list orders. And now they only are offering five eighty five and credit. Yeah. So that small, tiny window that you get from standard tournaments may have already passed. Yeah. Um, picked up some Westvale Abbey foils, um, divine visitation foils, got a really nice foil Russian anguish done making for 10 bucks pack foil. Um, Picked up a couple of little altars. Saved my dad from wasting $400 on a pack of antiquities because I stole the money that he was planning on spending and then paid him back on PayPal so he couldn't access it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a rough use of that money, I think. That, that was probably the highest EV play of the weekend, to be honest. Um, <laughs> now, circling back to my picks, where this all comes from is I actually got to take my uh, Atraxa Planeswalkers deck out for a spin which is currently worth something like $14,000 or something. I don't know. It's, it's where I have a lot of <laughs> money tied up, hoping that it will go up one day. And some of the cards are, have done exactly that. There's a bunch of foil Russian planeswalkers and stuff like Alpha Demonic Tutors that I picked up like three years ago that are all in very good position right now. Um, I play it in hard cases, which means it's pretty annoying to shuffle, which means it's annoying for others. So... It's not my primary EDH deck. I mean, I certainly don't play it with beginners because there's a bunch of foreign language stuff in there. But uh, I joined a commander pod and ran it by the the three lovely gentlemen that they matched me with and everybody was fine with it. And we had a good old time and ended up playing a few extra games that we slid in past Channel of Fireball at the table they provided us since there's no other place to go play. And we had a good time. I got destroyed by Godo going off, um, basically going infinite with Helm of the Host. And a couple of other random artifact equipment on the table. Then got killed by a very aggressive build of... Uh, who's the dude that... The white-black guy, Kambal, yep. Console of Allocation from Kaladesh. That guy does, that guy does work. Um, and they killed us with Etherflux Reservoir. So all was right in the world. People were comboing in the right directions. Um but because I got to take a tracks out for a few spins, I got a chance to reflect on the cards that I wanted to yank out of the deck. Kind of the thing you do if you play a, a, a day with your EDH deck, you usually end up identifying two, three, four, or five cards that maybe should get upgraded into something else. And I was also reflecting on which Planeswalkers were most important in the deck, both when you had access to doubling season style effects and you could get to their ultimate right away and just in general for kind of executing on the game plan of grinding out value against um, and fending off some of the uh, more combo oriented decks. So I came to uh, the following conclusions. Here are some planeswalkers you should probably be buying if you believe that War of the Spark is going to encourage people to buy, build more uh, planeswalker-flavored decks in Commander. And trust me, from what I've seen, that is what's going to happen. The first is Ajani Steadfast from M15, um, mostly on the strength of the fact that his minus two puts counters on all your creatures and loyalty counters on all your planeswalkers, which is one of the only mass loyalty um gains that you can get from a planeswalker um foils are in relatively short supply since it was been like four years since this card came out hasn't seen a reprint 
Um, I think if you snap up those foils in the $16 to $18 range or trade into them, you'll probably get a chance to exit them closer to 30 once 10 or 20 people buy up the remaining copies on the internet and the card goes into short supply. Okay, that seems quite quite reasonable, really. Uh, I mean, any old foil Planeswalker, I know that all of this stuff is going to be... All of the Planeswalkers are going to be worth keeping an eye on uh, coming into War of the Spark and what we expect is a Planeswalker heavy set. Uh, he's a cool one that does a lot of work for you. Um, his ability to add loyalty counters to all the other planeswalkers certainly gives him a dimension that a lot of other walkers don't, especially when you can do something like use a chain veil and then you get to use him twice, which means you get two loyalty counters on all your other walkers. So he gets pretty silly, um, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, I, I see him as sort of being an auto include in any planeswalker heavy deck, I imagine. The other cool thing that is important is that his ultimate is one of the ones where you get to activate it right away without killing him under a doubling season. So he comes in normally with four loyalty, his ultimate's a minus seven. So under doubling season or a similar effect, he goes to eight loyalty, you minus seven, and you get an emblem that says if a source would deal damage to you or a planeswalker you control, prevent all but one of that damage. So that means, and the part that people miss on that ultimate is it's you too. So all damage dealt to you is reduced to one. So if somebody tries to do 50 to you, that's one. Number one. If they try to do that's 20, terror. that's also one. Number two. The only that's one that doesn't change is if they deal one. So if they have a thing where they can hit you a bunch of times for one, you still have taken one. But in all other circumstances, they're going to have trouble. Um, and your planeswalkers only ever taking one really messes with them because they have to overcommit resources to try to get rid of your planeswalkers. And then if your tracks, the super friends de- deck is built well, you've got lots of tutor into wrath style of uh, chains of, of play where you can punish people over committing to the board. Um, I think I run five or six different wrath style effects and like five or 10 different ways to get them if I need to. So uh, yeah, Johnny Steadfast Foil is looking pretty good. Um, let me talk through the other two and then we'll circle back on yours just because they're all kind of related. Um, in a similar vein, Tamio Field Researcher um, also has one of these really sweet alts where... She has four loyalty, she goes to eight, the minus seven, same deal. You draw three cards, you get an emblem with, you may cast non-land cards from your hand without paying their mana costs. So you basically get omniscience and draw three cards. Um, Obviously, that's going to be a game-winning scenario in a lot of circumstances, um, but her plus one and minus twos are still pretty reasonable. The plus one, you choose up to two target creatures until your next turn. If those creatures deal combat damage... Um, you draw a card. So you can basically get some card draw out of other people's aggression, whether or not it's aimed at you. Um, and then her minus two, tap two non-land permanents. So this was interesting because I was able to tap down... Uh, what's the black creature that taps to destroy a creature and costs less based on uh, creatures in the graveyard? The cost less. Oh, not Avatar, children. Yeah, it's Avatar of Woe. Yeah, so I so somebody played a, a Never Nulls disc and somebody else played an Avatar of Woe and I used Tamio to lock both of them down um, and give myself an extra turn of free Planeswalker activations. Um, so she's very similar position to Ajani Steadfast in terms of cost of foils and availability. Um, relatively low availability of foils, somewhere around $17, $18, $19. Some places will have them at 20 and I think this is going to be a $30 foil by the time people uh, recommit to building out Atraxidax and some of the other interesting commanders that are likely to come out of War of the Spark. 
Um, and finally, along a similar vein, Tezzeret Artifice Master is actually a little bit cheaper. His foils are $13 or so, maybe as low as 12 maybe get an uh, eBay coupon, get them closer to 10 um, And he's really good, uh, not only in Atraxa, but also in all of the artifact-based um, uh, commander decks. Um, so he does pulls a little bit of double duty. And his abilities are actually pretty crazy. Like his plus one, I believe, makes a color of the stopter token. Um, and then his zero draws a card. And if you have at least three artifacts, draws you two cards. Um, and then he has one of the really sweet ultimates as well. Let me just look it up. You get an emblem with at the beginning of your end step, search your library for a permanent card and put it into play. That would be the one. <laughs> so between the three of them, all very strong alts. Um, and again, he comes in with five loyalty under a doubling season. He doubles to 10 and his ult is minus nine. So all three of these are shoe wins to be included in at least the builds in Commander that we already know about. All of these cards had a future whether or not we got War of the Spark. But with War of the Spark, I think it's going to push them all over the edge. All seems very reasonable to me. I mean, you've clearly played Atraxa quite a bit with your the Planeswalkers deck, so you have some reps with it, which is very important to understanding what works and what doesn't work. So I like that quite a bit. Um, all seem reasonable. They're all on the older side. They're all relatively popular, all in position to move. Uh, foil Planeswalkers across the board are going to have some demand put on them uh, after War of the Spark, as we believe. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they all look solid. Really, it's just take your pick, right? Like, which ones... Do you enjoy, do you think personally like the most, or maybe you just do a little bit of all three to diversify? Yeah, like, and it does pay to know even like versions of the various builds and which planeswalkers go where. You there? So, for instance, somebody tried to sell me, yeah. James? Yeah, I'm right here. Okay, sorry. I didn't catch anything. From where? Uh, I said it's all good stuff. Okay. Yeah, it definitely pays to know uh, which build, you know, the various builds of the various commanders. Because, for instance, somebody tried to sell me a foil Russian Nisa voice of Zendikar when they uh, saw me showing off some new additions to my Traxa deck on Twitter today. And I was uh, talking to them about how, um, while her ultimate is cool in almost any circumstance, um, because her other abilities are about creatures and putting counters on creatures, she's much more useful in the counters based versions of Atraxa that are basically about building up massive armies of um, you know, creatures on your side of the battlefield that have sort of all sorts of uh, token interactions where your tokens just keep on multiplying and multiplying and things get out of control. Um, not such a good Planeswalker and Atraxa super friends per se. Um, because her ultimate doesn't go off right away. She has three loyalty, she goes to six. The might you still have to get her up a couple times to if you want to keep her in play with her minus seven. Uh, which admittedly is good. You gain X life, draw X cards, where X is the number of lands you control. So nothing which, to sneeze at. Which is great. I mean, this is all great insight because, you know, if you're not familiar with the decks and what they're trying to do and playing them, it's hard to know what really matters in the course of a game and what doesn't and being able to say, no, this one is useful. This one, every time I play it, I'm happy. And, you know, but this other one that looks good is actually terrible and never works. Like, that's valuable information because that's how you know where the EDH players are going to go. Now, all of that being said, um, I would temper my own picks with the following commentary. Entirely possible that the number of potential 
planeswalker commanders or um, contributions from War of the Spark to other uh, interesting decks in commander takes people and spins people off in completely different directions. And that pressure on Atraxa specifically, or these planeswalkers in particular, um, may not spool out as quickly or as intensely as you might like. So I, I see all of these as mid to long picks that we're going to get there anyway. And if you want them for your decks, now is the time. And you might get paid off within a three month time span if they get caught up in some content like, you know, from articles on MGG price or elsewhere that talk about useful cards now that we've got War of the Spark, et cetera, et cetera. Well, sure. And I mean, that's always a possibility, right? That things, there's the excitement and the movement, but it's not quite as fast as you would like it to be. It happens. Yep. All right. So tell me about your first pick. All right. My first pick is a Twitter client that knows how to orient my photos correctly. What the hell, Twitter? I post a photo. It's sideways. I go back to the source photo. I rotate it 90 degrees. I post it again. It's sideways in the exact same way. What the hell? Yeah. There's lots of apps that do that kind of thing, and it always confuses me. Ah. All right. My first pick this week is on the same in the same vein as James's. Uh, you should have just done my pick for me. It's uh, Nicol Bolas God Pharaoh. So again, we know we're all expecting Planeswalkers and War of the Spark. I feel like a broken record talking about this. This popped up on my radar because I was browsing Joda, who has seen an upswing in popularity this week as a EDH commander. That's Joda Archmage Eternal. He's the one that uh, he's got a Fist of the Sun stapled to him. So five mana, one of each color casts a spell for you rather than uh, the actual casting cost. So Nicol Bolas, rather than costing seven, costs five. Uh, so pretty big change. He's a pretty good card. Pretty good card. His plus one. Wait, hold on. The EDH Rex picture is too small for me to actually read it. Tar- target opponent. Plus two is target opponent exiles cards from the top of his or her library until she- he or she exiles a non-land card. Until end of turn, you may cast that card without paying its mana cost. Plus one. Each opponent exiles two cards from his or her hand. Minus four. Nicol Bolas God Pharaoh deals seven damage to target opponent or creature and opponent controls. Minus 12, exile each non-land permanent your opponent, not your opponent's sure. control. Thank you. So his uh, plus one lets you cast, or his plus two lets you cast spells for free out of your opponent's decks. His plus one exiles, if you're playing a four-player game, six cards out of people's hands, which is pretty brutal. Um, and his minus four is not phenomenal. I mean, it's useful if you have one target you need to shoot, but that's unlikely in EDH. But his minus 12 is a essentially a, a Garrix in Garrix Rat or in Garrix Wake or Plague Wind, just gets rid of it all. But it hits more than creatures, it hits their artifacts and enchantments too. So resetting them to zero non land permanence is pretty, pretty rough, uh, especially later in the game. So it's very powerful. Um, he's relatively popular in EDH. We're looking at about 2,600, 2,700 decks that use him right now, which is not a whole lot relative to some of the other cards we've talked about. He is three colors, which certainly reduces the ability to put him into decks. He's also expensive, so you know not everybody's looking for him. Uh, but I would say 2700 for a Grixis card in EDH is not terrible. But you have the fact that Joda has been picking up in popularity lately. Um, he's big, he's cool. We're getting a Nickel Bolas. I'm sure there's going to be Nickel Balls going on War of the Spark, right? We saw that artwork today with his tail wrapped around Liliana. So we know that he's very much a central component of the story. So now you could, you know, you're easily going to be able to run a Nickel Bolas deck if you want to, um, which this will obviously be a part of. 
so he kind of just seems to hit all the right notes for me. And best of all, the foils are thirteen dollars, thirteen bucks. Well, and they have a tight ramp. They have a very steep ramp as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thirteen bucks, fifteen most likely if you're not the first person to listen to this, and then they jump up into seventeen, eighteen, nineteen pretty fast. Now I'm going to warn you, supply is kind of deep. I think it was Channel Fireball's got another fifty copies of this bad boy at fifteen, but they're about the only thing standing between you and twenty dollars. So. Uh, you know, between Joda, between War of the Spark, I think this guy's got some legs. All the other foil nickel bowls is, are well over twenty. So, you know, thirteen to twenty-five, I don't think is is a hard ride to is a is a hard target for him. It's not a hard target. Yeah, and likewise, people should probably, um, if not for Commander, where it's going to have all the same arguments you just made for the other version, but certainly for Standard, Nickel Bolas the Ravager, um, already not cheap. Um, as he's seen some play earlier in the season in standard, not really part of the the mix right now. Um, but this is a core set 2019 card and the Ravager only costs four mana, one Grixis. It's a four, four flyer. When he enters the battlefield, each opponent discards a card. So he gets uh parody um, with the card spent right away. Uh, and then for seven, the same cost as the card you mentioned, you exile him and flip him, And then you get... Nicol Bolas, the Arisen, seven loyalty, plus two draws two cards, minus three deals 10 damage to target creature or planeswalker, minus four put target creature or planeswalker card from a graveyard under the battlefield under your control, minus 12 exile all but the bottom card of target player's library. Those are all very powerful abilities. Um, And if we're getting a new Bolas and some support cards and some planeswalkers in his colors, and you believe that some of the planeswalkers might be of lower casting costs, or they might be on commons or rares that are, are targeted, kind of like the first few turns of the game. Um, all could set this up to be um, not a one or a two of, but a four of. Like I could, I, I think we can both agree that if there's a great Bolas planeswalker in War of the Spark um, that seems playable, and this is a little. F- further back down the curve seems like the ravager could get there right currently available in the like 15 to 17 dollar range could be a 30 to 40 dollar card oh yeah i mean the deck's got to have a way to fill out the bottom right like the, they can't all be eight mon and nickel bulls so having something that can you know you can kind of go to that's very much on theme very powerful very playable but also isn't a zillion mana i definitely like that in pretty much all these cases and the, the interesting thing here is you can't really go foils very easily Foils for the lowest price foil for Ravager on TCG is $42, then $50, and then it goes up. That's pretty pricey for a foil mythic and standard that's not currently seeing a lot of play. But some of this is predicated on just this card being great in EDH. And, you know, it might not be till rotation that we see pressure let off this, at which point it probably becomes a target again if it doesn't hit short term. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, what have you got for us? You got one more, oh, right? G- give me your last one first. Okay. Uh, my other card this week is uh, Unexpected Result, which you probably weren't expecting me to say. <laughs> uh, so Unexpected Result is the four mana sorcery that you shuffle your library, reveal a card at random from the top. If it's a land, you... In the play and return unexpected results to your hand, and if it's a spell, you cast it. So it is a nifty little spell. Um, in a set with a bunch of expensive planeswalkers, 
probably useful. You know, if you're building a Planeswalker deck and everything is five, six, seven mana, this lets you go get one randomly for free. And also if you have bigger, more expensive cards, it does some fun stuff. I also, you know, it also returns to your hand if you hit a land. So really the only, it, it doesn't actually quote unquote whiff until you hit like a one or two mana spell. Um, so nifty with Planeswalkers, uh, unexpectedly very popular. The, there are like 10 foil copies on TCG right now. That's it. Like there are not a lot out there. Um, and the card kingdom buy list. So you could get these for about the, you, the, you can, they're listed on TCG for under $2, but then they're shipping, which brings them up above, but the, the price tag is under two, uh, and card kingdoms buy list for cash is a dollar 80. So if you're paying $2 each for these and the cash buy list is a dollar 80, you're in pretty good shape, right? Like you essentially can't lose money like 20 cents a copy. So, and the, you know, you take store credit, you're over the two bucks. So between the really low supply and the strong buy list at Card Kingdom, like this is essentially zero risk. So if you can grab a bunch of these, I mean, they're not going to be $20 or anything. They're two bucks. But if they jump up to like six or $7, maybe even 10 and buy lists triple, you know, buy lists up or at the four or five, six range. Uh, I mean, you can ship them all to a buy list, get a nice little 30% trading bonus and convert your, you know, whatever $20 cash purchase into maybe, uh, I don't know, like 60, 80 bucks store credit. doesn't seem like a bad way to go. My concern with a card like this is visibility. This card, is, the play that's recorded on EDH React reflects that it is generally useful as a, util, a kind of low-level, mid-level utility card draw f- um, free casting mechanism that is aimed at decks that want to cast things at the high end of the curve. Um, but I'm not, I'm concerned it's not flashy enough and that people aren't going to put two and two together and say, oh, big, sexy planeswalkers, how do we get them into play? There's I- already some, it's already been noted by a few thousand players, minimum, and that's just the ones that have reported it on a specific site, mostly Goldfish, because that's where the data comes from for EDH Rec. Um, so that probably rec- rec- means there's more like ten or 15,000 people that are playing it maybe in North America. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that, would you agree that most of these other picks are more likely to hit home? I, I think the Planeswalkers are all pretty much locks. It's just a question of the time frame. The So I will tell you, it's not like I sat down and went, you know what would be good with Planeswalkers? Unexpected results. And I went and, uh, you know, kind of and looked for it. I just, I saw as I was browsing, because uh, you know what, I'll tell you what I was doing. I looked up uh, Deploy the Gatewatch. Uh, and then I said, okay, show me cards that have a high correlation with this. And unexpected results popped up. And I'm like, this can't be pricey, right? Like, it's got to be dirt cheap. So I just plugged it in on a curiosity. And that's when I saw the supply. And that's when I was like, oh, okay. Like, I never would have pegged this to be this low. I thought that you'd be there'd be 200 copies on TCG Player. But there aren't. There's 12. So I, I agree with you totally that people are not going to be like, oh, yeah, Planeswalkers, I should go by unexpected results. I'm just looking at the supply and going, clearly someone somewhere is buying this card because there's so few on the market. And it's not just uh, it's not just TCG either. I Star City has no foils either. Uh, so somebody's playing it. So one of the things that could help this tip would be if my prophecy about a like super high casting cost Planeswalker comes true. 
if there's a 10 to 15 casting cost planeswalker with ridiculous abilities, then, and it's the highest casting cost planeswalker of all time, which makes sense in a planeswalker focus set, that there might be something like that. Um, then unexpected results may end up being mentioned in content streams and people might latch onto it. Um, this card, it's interesting. I did not know this card existed until this cast, so <laughs> I don't feel entirely like comfortable passing judgment until I've tried it in something like Jota where you can manipulate the top of your deck with things like top or ponder and then go to town. I mean, it's way worse than you think it is. Most likely. Okay. Like it's okay. not a, I have played it before and it's amusing. It's a fun card. It's not a good card. And again, I didn't bring it up because I think it's an amazing pick. I brought, because I think it's an amazing card. I brought it up because there's no supply. And I'm like, well, heck somebody wants it. So t- take that as you will. I mean, I'm not telling you to eat. people have to love the card. I'm just observing a trend here. All right. So here's a sexy little stealth pick that I, I figured out. Um, based on rumors and whispers. Haven of the Spirit Dragon out of Dragons of Tarkir is a unique little land. Taps for colorless mana or adds one mana of any color to your mana pool. Spend this mana only to cast a dragon creature spell. Or for two and a tap, sack Haven of the Spirit Dragon and return target dragon creature or Ugin Planeswalker card from your graveyard to your hand. Now, pretty sure we're getting an Ugin. Um, if you look at the trailer for War of the Spark, it shows a bunch of stained glass windows that show a bunch of planeswalkers that are probably in the set. One of them is Ugin. Um, and there's been this long-running narrative with Niv-Mizzet on Ravnica where he is attempting to ascend or likewise gain amazing powers. If Niv-Mizzet gets a good card, or you get some other great dragon in the near future, plus you get a good Ugin, who can either be a strong commander or fits really well in a whole bunch of uh, different Planeswalker decks because he's colorless, then Haven of the Spirit Dragon, which um, you can get foils for just $4. I don't see them making a big effort to reprint this anytime soon. Um, You could easily get it as a reprint in a commander deck in a fall where you have a dragon style commander, but we've had some of those not so long ago. And I I just, something tells me this gets like three to five years before you ever see it again. Um, There aren't that many foils around, but they're dirt cheap and that it can be a really good situation. Once you clear out of the $4 copies, it's going to be 10, it's going to be 15, it's going to be 20. And if any of the various elements um, end up developing on the demand side that make people start reaching for this card, it's going to get to 2025 in a hurry. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, it is a, if, if you're expecting to see Ugin uh, or any dragons, be they nickel balls or something else, this is certainly well positioned. Uh, foils are just at that juicy point where there's a little bit of, little bit of heft to the price so that a real spike will give you a solid return. We're not talking about $0.75, cents, a 75 cent starting point here. $4 is a, is, a, is a comfortable starting price. You can buy in a lot, but you get, um, you still get rewarded when it jumps. Uh, and we'll make, Ugin will certainly turn attention back to this. Um, and as we saw with uh, 
Sliver Hive Lord and Sliver Hive, you know, there is demand for these types of things. And I think that this will probably turn around a lot faster than Sliver Hive has. So assuming you get your Ugin, which is a pretty safe bet, uh, I definitely like the looks of Haven. This card uh, apparently was already reprinted in a commander deck. It must have been when we got the Ur-Dragon. Uh, I think that was two years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so given that it got a reprint there in a commander, uh, dragon-focused commander deck, and it's reported in 5,000 decks on EDH rack, just on the back of things like Scion of the Ur-Dragon, the Ur-Dragon, Karthus Tyrant of Jund, Atarka Worldrender, Intet, uh, Zerlin of the Claw, Prosh, which continues to be a popular commander, um, Surak, uh, Surak, Dragonclaw, or Coligan. Um, there's all sorts of dragon side demand for this card. Hasn't really been that much Ugin side demand. I'm very curious to see what develops if we get a great Ugin. So have you... Um, did you consider the other one, Crucible the Spirit Dragon? Yeah, that that's not... Uh, because it doesn't have the dual, um, like first of all, Haven of the Spear Dragon is basically a painless city of brass for any time you're dealing with dragons, um, and the fact that it can like act as a reanimation spell, or, uh, or at least a, a eternal witness for your dragons and your ugans, um, is what ca- catches my attention. It's a very unique combination of effects. It fits into completely different styles of deck. Yeah. Okay. Some uh, a lot of good cho- a lot of choices there for our listeners this week. Um, okay. Uh, segment three, metagame week in review, uh, the pro tour this week in pro tour Cleveland, uh, fantastic job by autumn, uh, Birchett, Birchnell, I don't know, something Birchett. British, Birchett, uh, big deal, big deal for autumn, uh, you know, big deal, great job for them. The trophy always matters. The narrative on this event mattered more than the event. I think, uh, LSV. I'm glad Especially Pretty amazing to see LSV top eight. Yeah. I'll- uh, his t- um, was really kind of gunning for Reed Duke for a while there because I think everybody would like to see him win one. Um, but his fourth Pro Tour top eight probably helps lock him in for the Hall of Fame. And Autumn Burchett winning one for the entire trans community has had a major impact, not just for trans players, but for those of us who consider ourselves allies consider visibility in general to be important in the game. And we're super stoked to see a charismatic and unique personality take down a pro tour against some of the best in the game. Yeah. I I was really taken aback when the victory occurred because it tends to be such a uh, relatively emotionally blank moment. If you watch people win competitive sporting events, the, you know, they're screaming and jumping and, courts get rushed and it's, they're very evocative pro tours someone extends a hand someone shakes it they smile they pick up their cards you, you know you might hear their friends yelling off stage but you know what you see on the cameras is very low impact honestly it doesn't seem like a big deal uh when after uh, akawa extended his hand it was about four seconds before emma handy and their other pals nearly knocked autumn out of their chair as they rushed to congratulate her. So that was exciting. You know, that kind of had a real palpable sense of the victory there. So it was, it was a feel good moment, I think for magic. Yeah. I think autumn goes with they or them. Uh, yes, I said they, I little, said they a little, a little tricky for all of us, but um, we're doing our best. 
And yeah. it, it is it is extremely difficult to be accurate with that as despite how badly you want to be, it is still difficult and, to do it. And I really and I really do want to pay respect <laughs> where it's due because we're talking about a player who was stone cold in the zone, ultra strategic, kicking ass through that entire top eight, a dominant performance against really great players. And there was a ton of pros that came out talking about how um, having watched the match, um, matches that Autumn uh, delivered, felt like they would have lost from the same positions just through the subtleties of um, optimizing the performance from the blue tempo deck. Um, we also had Esper Control in second place, uh, her fi- uh, their fi- finals opponent uh, in the hands of Yush- Yoshihiko Ikawa, Akaiwa, Akawa, just absolutely <laughs> murdering these Japanese <laughs> names. It's four people. Yoshihiko Ikawa would be my guess. Yoshihiko Akawa. There you go. Thank you. Luis Scott Vargas. Third place, Reed Duke in fourth, Marcio Carvalho in fifth, Julian Berto in sixth with Mono Blue Agro again. Red Deck wins in the hands of Alex uh, Majlaton and Michael Bonde with Simic Nexus. Wow. Could you have a top eight other than LSV and Reed Duke <laughs> with names that are harder for content creators to pronounce if they haven't heard them spoken aloud. It's certainly a minefield that, you know, it's also worth pointing out that I didn't listen to the whole pro tour, but apparently the coverage team was on point with their pronoun usage the entire time, which is really remarkable in its own right, because uh, not only do they have to keep that at the forefront of their mind, they also have to be making intelligent conversation about magic. And it's just so easy to get distracted. So, I feel like this weekend was a victory for everyone. All right. So interesting over on MTG top eight, they don't just show you the top eight decks because at the pro tour, as we all know, um, you play a combination of limited. They did uh, a draft plus, I think five or six rounds of standard per day. And so the players that made top eight aren't necessarily the top, the standard decks that did the best. So it's also worth looking at the best decks tab over on MTG top eight. Um, But mono blue aggro was also the only 30 point deck. At 27 points, you had Esper Control, Sultai Midrange, and Simic Nexus all making a showing. And then LSV's Is It Phoenix and Alex uh, Majlaton's Red Deck Wins were the 25-point slots. Um, and then you just see a mix of Mono Blue Aggro, uh, Merfolk in the hands of Raphael Levy, which was one of the more unique builds on 24 points. He was running um, Deep Root Waters. Whenever you cast a Merfolk spell, create a 1-1 blue Merfolk creature token with Hexproof as a 4-of. Alongside Benthic Biomancer, recently printed in the latest Ravnica set, Deep Root, Elite, Jade Bearer, Kumena Speaker, Kumena Tyrant of Orazka, Merfolk Mistbinder, Merfolk Trickster, Silvergill Adept, and 4 Incubation Incongruity. This is not a deck I think people saw as even remotely viable for this tournament. No, that's certainly a strategy. I mean, it's pretty close to the mono blue aggro, right? It just takes away some of the cards and replaces them with more merfolk. But I mean, you're also talking about Raphael Levy, who is a master of the game and in the Hall of Fame. The the blue tempo deck is much more about putting small flyers in, and then every time you cast a, a kill spell against their threat, they are blowing you out by boosting the creature 
and giving it hexproof. Um, and then casting a chart, of course, and going up on cards. The Merfolk deck is much more about, is kind of that traditional uh, ad board presence and ad board presence and take advantage of a bunch of synergies based on, the, you know, the tribal um, interactions. But Deep Root Waters was certainly caught my, certainly a card that caught my attention. Um, Especially the, the Phoenix decks um, still underscore for me that Arclight Phoenix probably is a card that's still too cheap. The card is not rotating in the fall. Um, if it continues to have support in the standard format that uh, in October and November. Too cheap at $28. And <laughs> yeah. Well, and well, I mean, I was saying this when it was 23. Um, so it's already gained some ground. But yeah, it could be too cheap under 30 because this could be, I was talking to people on the floor and I was, I was saying, convince me that this is not the next Snapcaster Mage. Great in standard while it's present. Fantastic in modern, playable in legacy. Not really relevant in EDH, but not sh- sure it's going to need that. Um, you could have set up a folding table outside the convention hall with a sign on the front of it that said, Arclight Phoenix is the next Snapcaster. Changed my mind. Yeah, I could have done that. I'm not even holding that many of this card, to be honest. Like, I think less than 10 copies total between foils and non-foils. So already sold most of them. But the more I think about it, the more I feel like it might even be a buy at 40. Like, is this just going to be a card that is going to be $60 in a couple of years and we're going to be looking at each other saying, we knew this was going to happen. Why don't we own more you copies? You just want to go back. To, I don't know, 28 bucks. That's, that's a, the problem is even if it hits 40, right? Even if it hits 40 after taxes and fees you know they're you're you know if you're selling tcg they're taking 12 percent. so if you're at 40 that's bringing it down to like 35 probably and if you don't put it in if you put it in a mailer now you're like 31 because they're like three bucks now so and you bought in at 28 so even at 40 dollars, this isn't a great return this really has to hit at least 50 in order for this to be a worthwhile spec um, and ideally, you'd see it at sixty. I'm I'm largely not in because there's all these other things short term that are yeah. better, like buying Ristic Study Judge foils in Europe and whatever. But you know, if my net wasn't being cast quite that often or quite that wide, then certainly from a player perspective, I wouldn't be hesitating to grab these because what's going to happen when you have a great card if it if it carries forward in standard for another season. When a bunch of other cards rotate, it's still good. Like the support for is there for it in October, or November. Then what's going to happen is it's going to explode because it's not rotating for another year from them. From then, if it's still good, no one's opening any fresh copies. A lot of people that have picked them up in drafts and whatever have already traded out of them, and the dealers are just going to see demand outpace supply. Uh sure. I mean, if you're looking at this from the perspective of I'm a player who wants. You know, I'm a player. Do I want to own this card? Uh, I mean, if you don't own any now and you foresee yourself playing this type of card deck in standard and or modern, then sure, I don't think it's a bad buy because I agree. The fact that it's not rotating means this is set up pretty well to to hold its price until at least next, you know, next summer uh, since it's not rotating this fall and it will continue to have strength in modern and you can keep playing the card now. Right. Like if you own it, you get to play with it. And even if it loses five bucks, uh, if you owned it for nine months or a year and only lost five dollars on it, then you came out ahead. And if it goes the other way, then, you know, you got your copies for cheaper. So I'm definitely on board with this if it's a card you want to play with. 
uh, as a spec, eh, it's hard for me to recommend that just because there's so many other greener pastures at the moment. But, you know, if you're looking to buy four copies of something, you could do a lot worse. Yeah. And I mean, part of this depends on what this fit, like secret modern set does to the modern landscape, like how much of an upset it is. If it just adds a deck or two or, you know, adds 10 relevant cards, that's one thing. If it adds 30 or 40 or 50 cards, modern could look really different in six months. And then I think Arclight Phoenix is still probably good enough, yeah, but mean, maybe not. You know, the lots of great decks have 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 gone the way of the dinosaur, at least temporarily. Yes, that is really hard for us to know at this point. That's for sure. Um, you know, if that modern set is adding new cards, who knows what we're going to get. Um, is there anything else on the standard front you want to talk about here? No, I think that the Kaya spec is pretty ghosted. Um, <laughs> it could be hard to get out on that. Um, so apologies to anybody else who bought copies at five dollars. Better you better hope Mono Blue stays good and that these start draining. Um, I, would, I would like you to apologize to me for saying that. <laughs> She's the ghost assassin, dude. Yeah, I'm aware. Uh, she kills ghosts with this knife. Yeah. Anyway, um, we can move on to talking about the timing of the release of this modern set that we're going to hear about on Thursday. By the time the general public listens to this cast, they're already going to know all about it. So we could say some stuff now that would look prophetic, but we won't. We'll just let you find out for yourself. Um, I will say this, though. I'm very curious about whether the pro tour that is at the end of April, where we know that the pros are drafting War of the Spark, but are playing modern without it. I'm curious whether this modern set is coming out in June, like a month after War of the Spark, or if it's coming out late March, early April before War of the Spark, so that the only modern pro tour of the year, I'm assuming, uh, shows off these new cards. Yeah, you and I were talking about this off. So the pro tour for War of the Spark is in late April, right? April. War of the Spark releases in, uh, what did we say the release date for that was? Uh, War of the Spark release date. War of the Spark releases, uh, no official date has been announced. No, that can't be right. Release to April. Oh, wow. We don't have May 3rd. It's May 3rd. May May 3rd. Okay. Wait. It's May May 3rd? Yeah. The Pro Tour is April 26th to 28th. You mean March 3rd? No. If War of the Spark is May 3rd and the Pro Tour is in April? Yep. So the Pro Tour is before War of the Spark comes yeah. out? Yeah, because remember they announced the pre-release for War of the Spark is the same weekend as the GP, which messed with all the vendors in the UK. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's okay. That's what's so weird about this. Now that you say that, I remember that. So the whole thing's weird. So I'm wondering just how weird is it? Okay, so War of the Spark will not be out when the pro nope. tour for War of the Spark occurs. So I guess but, I'm assuming that means that the very first time you see War of the Spark drafted will be at the pro tour. Which is right. Insane. Can we agree that this is such a weird swing back because when they de- started delaying the pro tour until six weeks after a set came out, they set it up. So in many situations, the format would already be relatively settled and it would be really hard for the pros to break the format, which is kind of what they like to do. Like the pros, the pros that consider themselves top of the game, they prefer to be in a situation where 
everybody else has relatively limited information and they can leverage the strength and experience of their like deep team pool. You know, we're talking primarily about like the channel fireball team and, and, and similar where they have so many great minds working, trying to crack the format that they can get a leg up. And we've seen that in pro tours in the past, but wizards was, was worried that once the pros solve the format, nobody else is interested in trying to resolve it. So they moved it back six weeks. Now they're going to force them to draft basically the, the same day they see, see the cards or realistically speaking, it's going to be more like during preview season, they're going to be taking notes and like doing all drawing up card mock-ups on blank pieces of paper and playing them. Yes. Yeah. It's going to be super awkward. And it, you almost feel like they're supposed to get like, that's just a mess, right? Like, are they supposed to give like special arena accounts to the pro tour competitors so that they have, Early access. Uh, the ability to test this, but then that's a mess. And do you make them print and proxy all this crap instead? I don't know what the answer to that is. But okay, but here's here's where we're going with this. The Pro Tour is at the end of April. They're drafting War of the Spark, but the constructed format is not standard with War of the Spark. Mo- with War of the Spark, it's modern. Okay, so sounds semi-reasonable, but we like, you know, the fact that they're drafting for the first time is a little weird, but other than that, this is a normal modern pro tour, except that we have this modern product on the horizon and we know that it's going to be a big deal for modern. And, you know, James and I are both believe that there are cards in here that new cards to modern in here. Um, and, I'll, and I'll say this much. I more or less have confirmation that we're right about that. Okay. We're so get, we're getting new cards for modern. James has got something spicy. He's saying we get, we're getting new cards. I've, I've suspected as much for the longest time. I'm surprised it took this long, frankly. So now Wizards now has two choices. It is currently the end of February. We The Pro Tour is in just about two months. Do they shove the new modern product in between now and the end of March and give us a br- really brand new modern format for the pros to tinker with? Oh, and remember, that means that they have two months to like announce the release date and put it on shelves and sell to you or do they wait until after the pro tour but then that gets weird because now you have the only modern pro tour of the year they all play pro they all play modern but then a month later that format doesn't exist anymore because they just put new product out that changed the format so now that i say all this out loud we talked about it really quickly before the cast but i'm like hey hold on we should talk about this on cast now that i say all this out loud it's two months until the Pro Tour, but War of the Spark doesn't come out until after the Pro Tour. So given that piece of information, which I was missing when we were talking earlier, I'm I'm betting this is coming out before the Pro Tour because um, it's no longer competing with War of the Spark. One of the things that we talked about was like, well, now you're going to have this modern product competing with War of the Spark sales period and players just don't have that much money to burn at one time. Uh, they kind of cannibalize their own profits. But now they can sell you the modern profit pro- product during the month of like March and the beginning of April or something. And then, you know, ride off of the, you know, that comes out, you get excited, modern's a big deal, the pro tour happens, you're all excited about modern. And then a week later, like just as you're kind of over that hump of hype, bam, war of the spark hits the shelves. Uh, so it's, I, it makes more sense to do it that way now, I think, now that I think about it. If I had to pick a release date that triangulates all of this for the modern product that sets it up so the pros have enough time to test with it and they get a brief preview season that starts this Thursday, which will be preview season will start February 28th. 
I would guess that the release date is either March 22nd or March 29th. It could also be April 5th. Actually, if I had to pick between all of those, I'd say March 29th or April 5th are my picks for when this modern set might come out. And the reason that seems like a really short uh, time period. But keep in mind, Ultimate Masters was released with barely a month. And a lot of, and I'm sure the big vendors knew about it, it was coming, but the small vendors did not. And this modern product could be similar. They're not 100% sure how it's going to do because it's a new product line for them. So it'll probably be underprinted, like Battle Bond or less would be my guess. I'm expecting 24 packs. No way. Per, per, no way. Per, per box. And, and I'm expecting it to be at a middle, a new middle price point. So on the heels of the announcement that MSRPs are not being shared anymore, I'm thinking that the wholesale price on this will be $80, $90, to the vendors from wholesale, which means that the store price on this will be like cheapest price online might be $110, $120, and scaling up at your local LGS to $140, $150, $160. Uh, I think your price point is not unreasonable. I don't think that they're going to do Battle Bond or less in terms of supply. I think I think this will be a pretty healthy release. Now, we Aaron Forsyth said a while ago that they don't do reprints of Master Sets and that EMA was the sole exclusion to that. And this is not a Master Set, so they're not beholden to that. But I would expect them to treat it roughly the same and not expect to do any reprints. But I don't think they're going to do a short supply on this because if they're introducing new cards that are needed for Modern, it's going to be real rough if they don't put enough copies out there and every new card that that is new to modern, the prices are like $30 or whatever. Um, because yeah, I, I don't if, think if you made a, Battle I, Bond legal and modern, that would have like those boxes would have been 300 bucks. Okay. I think we have just different understanding of how much Battle Bond there was. And um, Battle Bond was not a scarce product. There's still plenty of Battle Bond around. Um, okay, well, if Battle Bond wasn't printed at Masters, was Battle Bond printed more than Masters then? Like more than yeah, yeah, IMA yeah, yeah. type of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Oh, more than IMA? Eh, I don't know if that's a good comparison. More than Ultimate Masters? Yes. Yeah, but UMA was intentionally short run. But sure. UMA can be short run because it's all reprints. See, that's the thing is it's not all reprints and it's for a competitive format where I think people are more price sensitive. Because it's one thing if your EDH cards are expensive, because there's a ton of expensive EDH cards, but you don't want $80 modern cards are not good, right? Like they've spent the entire run of modern trying to get cards below that. That's why Mott was printed seven times. Yeah. So I, I, I don't feel, I'm not very hard line about a lot of these details. Most of the like product, like, cons- like engineering details I just shared are very much guesswork. I could easily see you being right and there being, say, 40% more of this product than there is for Battle Bond or even an open-ended print run and they'll go back to the presses once they're just not sure to what degree. I suspect the product is designed to sell. <laughs> We've talked off-cast about some cards I think are in there um, that everybody will know about shortly probably because I suspect that they will lead with that announcement. The cards I suspect are in the product are... Not cards I know for sure are there, but they seem to make sense. And if I was them, I would probably lead with them to drive hype on the set. So once we all know about it, we can talk about it in more depth next week. But 
this very much seems to me like them saying, hey, here's a really great way to generate some revenue in the middle of the year. Let's see how this goes. And the, the, the key dynamic here is being able to sell new cards to modern players and treat modern like standard. And if it works out, you can expect to see more of that forever. Yeah, they'll ride that. Ride that for a while. If they give us new cards in modern, they can coast on modern for at least several more years until they've got enough product lined up on arena to launch a new modern format um, and try and eventually segue existing modern into pseudo legacy and have a new newer modern version and then hopefully just leave legacy in the dust. And this, this dovetails so well with so many things, right? Ultimate Masters was chock-a-block full of reprints. They can't do that forever. In fact, they said, Master Sets are done for now. What they're really saying to us is, we're not going to need them anymore because we're already basically out of significant reprints. So we're going to go back to this model where every time we give you a supplemental product, you're going to get some a double handful of notable reprints. Like I would guess there will be like 10 or 15, anywhere from 5 to 15 relevant reprints for modern in this set and then the rest of the focus will be on new cards and when you're publishing new cards into a format you have all the benefits of supporting standard that we said you know the fact that they couldn't print new cards into modern and legacy was one of the big reasons why those formats were not getting more support now that you're seeing them say that the second big pro tour on the um, mythic championship tour is going to be modern it very much makes me suspicious that the modern set is coming out sooner than people thought not in June, but in March, so that it sets up a very interesting Pro Tour, right? Can you think of a time you'd be a Pro Tour you would be more interested to watch than one where you have a brand new draft format and a brand new modern format? Oh, people are going to flip out. I mean, that's going to be such a big deal to be like, okay, here is an entirely new set of 30 or 40 cards in modern uh, that you've never seen before. Uh, here you go. The pros are going to give it their best shot, but we're only going to give them three weeks to figure it out. Uh, so even, you know, they're going to give you a place to start, but you're going to know that that's not the end of it, right? There's still going to be more to do after that. You know, what's weird though, is magic online. There wasn't any battle bond on magic online, right? I, I genuinely do not know. I don't think so. And this is going to, so this is the first supplemental product in a while where it absolutely must be added to Magic Online if you have any hope of continuing to run that that site. I mean, that that app. Software. It's not an app because it's from 1992. Well, you know, so, if, it's, if it's like 70% reprints, those are done. Those are right. They don't have to do anything for mm-hmm. that. So you have 30% you have to build new cards for, which isn't too bad. It can't be 70% reprints. So I think it's the other way around. I think it's 70 to 80% new cards. And the thing, especially since we've talked about the the, we've talked about the theme off cast, right? So, if that's the theme, not all cards fit into that theme. And so, they're modern cards. So, and the only place to play digital modern officially is Magic Online. Can't play modern on Arena. Pretty unlikely that they're adding these cards to Arena since they don't have any of the rest of the cards for modern. So that's not going to happen. So they must be launching it on Magic Online with all of the cards. In which case, it's a little awkward because if they're setting up streamer dreams where everybody's getting to like 
Saffron goes crazy with all these new modern decks he can pull together with all these new cards they're giving him. He's doing that all on Magic Online instead of their baby arena. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. awkward. And 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 might be one of the arguments for how none of this is happening <laughs> the way we're proposing. And in fact, the modern set is is coming out in June after the modern pro tour which which will just be the modern as it is now. And that's just how things are playing out because the other alternative is weird. But when you get to June, you still have the same problem. Whenever you put out this modern set, you've still got this weird part where the streamers are pulled towards cute new modern decks and they still have to do it on Magic Online. Right, which which I don't think I don't think that's inherently a problem. Like Wizard still makes a bunch is still profiting on Magic Online. They it still exists. They're not getting rid of it anytime soon. Or, you know, not this not in the next couple months. So having it there reminding people that exists is fine and if they have to choose between the streamers only ever streaming on arena and getting to sell new modern cards to players in paper it's like either we don't either we get to we can we have to make the choice if the streamers are only ever on arena or we print new cards for modern and sell them to modern players but that means the streamers show up on magic online sometimes i don't i don't think that that scenario is necessarily bad for them obviously they prefer to have it all in arena but i don't think that it's a deal breaker talk about a roller coaster for finance on magic online sure i'm glad i don't have to be trying to navigate those waters anymore because think about what it's like where we've had a massive collapse in the overall price points for cards on magic online there have been some recovery point inflection points that signaled recovery for certain cards to a certain degree, but not as much as people would hope. But now you've got brand new modern cards coming in. So how do you price those? And what's going to, how do you man? how do you predict, you can't use any of what happened two years ago, three years ago, six years ago on Magic Online. You can only use what you, what has happened in the last six months and what you think is going to develop in the next six to 12 months. So really tough position to be in to be trying to figure out how to deploy capital and when to take uh take profits on a brand new slew of modern cards that nobody knows anything about that we're getting all at once it's yeah i i am glad i don't own any tickets let's just go with that someone's gonna make some money but because because this format is i'm assuming draftable that kind of is like par for the course with all magic products of this type type so it's got a draft format. People will be drafting it. Cards are going to get cheap for a period of time. And if there's like a true name nemesis type thing, do you go deep on Magic Online? Like if it gets down to whatever price, a, do- a ticket and a half, 70 cents, eight tickets. Like I, 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 would, I, <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to begin at this point. Yeah. And the problem is you've got this tension like, oh, here's a brand new format with all these cool cards and everyone suddenly cares about modern. But meanwhile, Wizards is pouring all their money into Arena and you know they're going to pull that plug eventually. And it feels like you're just playing chicken with a roller coaster or with a train at that point. I'm going to have to check in with some of the bot owners and Matthew Lewis and see what some of the people that are more plugged into this situation have to say because I have a feeling it's going to be some Wild West action. I have to imagine. All right. That's right. I mean, and 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 likewise for specs. Like, tell me you're not excited about a set of sight unseen modern cards where everybody probably gets it all wrong out of the gate. Oh, that's thrilling. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be pestering everyone I know who n- knows more than I do at this point because that is, uh, you know, there's going to be the level zero stuff, but it's going to be the level one and two that's really valuable, but you're not going to know that right away. And not, And not to mention, like, trying to figure out what things get turned on what what bad specs become good specs 
from prior sets because all of a sudden they've got new combo pieces that work with them. That's going to like the cascade effects from introducing this many cards into a well-settled format all at once are, are going to be unprecedented. It's also going to be pretty cool to see, try to see if we can spot the EDH cards that end up way too cheap in Europe while everybody's looking the other way at the modern and legacy cards. I mean, it does, it does happen, right? It happens in standard every time, but that's, you know, that's 270 cards or whatever, but they're not built for modern. They're built for standard. And, and this and, and all new cards are specifically meant for modern. Yeah. And our, and our discussion of print run really matters because there's a big difference. If it's ultimate masters, some of these cards could hit highs very quickly within six months. If it's open-ended print run, then these things probably stay dirt cheap for a long while. But some of the foils, the obvious foils are going to take off like rocket ships. Yeah. Like the you know you and i have talked about a uh say this much we've established that we think that there is an important dual land cycle that no one's ever seen before in this set and foils of those if we're right are going to be crazy well and again but that'll depend on the inventory right like if it turns out there's a ton of this stuff like there really is a lot then the prices aren't going to be able to withstand that supply just like when there's an, you know, when Teferi comes out and turns out he's the best card in Dominaria, people just keep cracking packs until it drags the price down. But I know it, it, it's going to be exciting to see how this all goes. If we get those duels, what's your entry price on foils? I, I don't know because it depends on what the actual, what they're, I, I don't know. I really don't know because it depends so much on what the actual printed text is and also what we perceive the supply to be because those make a huge difference. And if you want to know more about our vague, cryptic statements about sets that haven't even officially been announced yet, you can head over to the MTG Price Discord channels. Where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTG Price doing the Watchtower series. Keep in mind that if you want to hear more details on our crazy conspiracy theories, you do have to pay for Super Pro Trader. Uh, oh, we will provide that a you, new thing? Yeah, we will provide you with our PayPal accounts so that you can pay us directly. I was, was going to say, yeah. is, that, is that the one where they pay you directly? Yes. <laughs> nice. Um, you guys can find me over on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com when I have time. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money hanging out in the Discord and playing Magic the Gathering. All right. That's the end of episode 157, episode one of year four. We have to make a new spreadsheet, don't we? Uh, I had a good time, and I will see you again next week. I'm excited to rejoin everyone next week so that we can see how right or wrong we were. Uh, if we were wrong, we're not Thank recording. You tra- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Travis. And we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Burr. It's cold in here.